This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Welcome to The Cartographers, a podcast that charts our changing cultural landscape and provides hope for 21st century Christian leaders. We are Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales, a pastor and a PhD. Welcome to this conversation. We're starting a series we're calling Stuck in the Middle about how leaders are often pulled in different polarizing directions in this cultural moment. So if you haven't, go back and listen to our first 10-minute episode called Stuck in the Middle, because likely you feel like you are stuck, pulled in multiple directions as a leader. And we want to help give you a framework for understanding what we mean when we talk about culture wars and how they're affecting Christian leaders. So today in this episode, we're going to do two things. We're going to talk about the terminology and the issues involved in the culture wars to give you a broad overview and framework. But before we do that, we want to recognize we are on this journey with you. We are guides asking some good questions. So we want to also, the second part, which we're actually doing first, is we want to ask those good questions. So what questions are you bringing to the table, Bryce, as we think about the culture wars? Yeah, I think it's helpful to think even as we begin this series, like wh- what, are, what are my questions? Why are we even exploring this? And so um, I, I have a handful of questions, but the, the first one is this, is it possible to explore the issue of culture wars in a way that actually helps people uh, just stop shouting past one another? Like, can we actually do this in a way that people who maybe if you're coming to this, you identify, uh, you lean one side or the other. Um, can we, can we have this conversation in a way that would make a difference for people? I would love to see that. Can we do that? Uh, that's question one. Um, the second question is what, I mean, I'm a pastor and I'm always thinking about the role of the church in this. And so how does the church contribute positively to a world with culture war tendencies? I, I still remember the um, first Sunday when COVID shut the world down. And I remember like, I'm, I've never done this before, but I'm looking at my phone. We're like recording uh, our worship or streaming worship service live from my living room using my phone on Facebook Live, super low tech. And I remember saying to our congregation, like, my hope is that uh, the the church is going to be this calming presence in the midst of this crisis. Turns out that did not happen at all, and um, and and that that grieves me. Um, how does the local Christian church in healthy ways um, kind of function as a calming anxiety release valve. Um, Like why doesn't it, how do we do that? How do we, how do we contribute? You know, some of our listeners are leaders. What do pastors and leaders do to build healthy churches that can function in that way? Um, What do, what do 
people who maybe you're not a pastor, maybe you're a engaged, you know, member in your church. Uh, what, what can you do to be a healthy, helpful part of that? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah. Real practical questions. I like that. What, what, what else do you got? Um, you know, I guess one of the questions that, or one of the solutions it feels like people often point to, um, when you think about culture wars is like developing relationships, you know, seeing the humanity in the other side. And, um, I totally get that. And I also, part of me wonders like, how, how much of a part of the solution is that? Is, is that possibly naive? Is it, um, uh, I, I, I think it's, I think it's easy for us to say, this is not where I am, but let's say I'm like way out on the left side of an issue. And, um, I, I despise people who hold to the right wing version of that issue, but I know one person and I like that person and I love that person. And I care about that person. I can talk sanely to that person. Does that um, back me away from the culture war hysteria? I'm not sure if it does. So I'm interested in exploring, like, uh, does my relationship with one person affect the way that I engage in the culture wars, (laughs) more generally speaking? How do we think about that? Um, And then I guess my last question, and this kind of speaks to uh, especially uh, people who are leaders in churches, but there there is often this sense of feeling like we're getting shot at from both sides. And even, you know, we're calling this stuck in the middle because it feels like, you know, I've certainly experienced as a pastor. I know so many people who have where it's like, well, in 2016, all the people on the left side left my church. And then in 2020, all the people on the right side left my church. And it's like, uh, I'm stuck here where I am. I'm getting shot at from both sides. I get these angry emails. Um, and so part of why I think we want to explore this is, is we do want to help. Um, we talk to a lot of leaders in that spot and we want to help you feel less alone. Uh, what, what can we do to help that leader who feels like, um, you know, they're getting shot from both sides whenever somebody says, you know, Hey, can we get lunch together? You know, my, like my anxiety spikes, um, you know, something's wrong, what's going on. And so, um, yeah, we want to talk about how can we, um, how can we, you know, on our podcast just be a source of encouragement, but especially I think we need to think about like, what does it look like to find other people that you interact with on a regular basis to be, uh, encouraging to you. And so, you know, one, one idea would actually be if you're listening to this now and you're like, yeah, that sounds great. Who do you know in person that you could invite to listen to this episode, this series with you? And you could, you know, we're going to release episodes every other week and you could listen to it. And then you could get on the phone for 30 minutes and talk about it together and encourage one another and use this as a resource. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. How about you? What, uh, what questions are you bringing as we start this series? Yeah. You know, I feel like I have a lot of directional questions. Like my default position sometimes in all of these things is to just disengage. So like, this is stupid. Why are people arguing? Like, I'm just not going to open up social media or like, do we even need to think about politics? You know, cause most of our culture war conversations have to do with political identities And so my questions are pretty broad. Why should we care? 
Why should we engage? <laughs> Some of this feels really stupid. Um, and, you know, why does this matter enough to get me to want to opt in to some of these questions um, is is a question, yeah, that I'm wrestling with. Um, and so to think what are what are the alternate pathways? So I'm really looking forward to thinking more broadly about alternatives to the culture wars so that I feel like I have a lane um, to be in. Um, I'm also curious about how did we get here and how do we get out of this? Um, how do we form our children or next generation leaders? Uh, so that this is not the default way that we interact with people. Like, is this the future of America? Like, yeah. ooh, like. I think one of the interesting things about that, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit, but it, it almost felt like, I remember in the 90s, I mean, we were teenagers uh, in the nineties, but, but there was this sense of like, Oh, the culture wars. And then it felt like in the two thousands, I didn't hear that term. And then post 2015 ish, it's like, it's flaring up again. So, um, yeah, that question of how did we get here? It feels like what's happening now is different than what's happening, was happening culturally in the nineties. Um, is this inevitable? Um, some of those questions, super interesting. And, you know, I, you know, what's the trajectory and, you know, thinking ahead, I think is an important way, a good directional question. And, and then I also want to know, like, is this, is this a middle-class thing? You know, is this an upper middle-class thing that people are concerned about the culture wars? Is this, um, you know, how does class play in? How do issues of race play in? You know, are folks in historically black churches having these same conversations? Um, we're in a pretty white area, uh, and so, you know, those are questions that I have is how much of this is kind of feeding the machine um, of where we are and actually not helping us think more broadly, whether that's in terms of our racial identity or our class identity or even our national identity as well. Yeah. Good question. Big questions. So, yeah, we yeah. Yeah. And so we would love to hear from you, too. What sort of questions do you have? We can. We'd love to share on social media or wherever you kind of connect to hear what questions you have too. Okay. So those are the questions kind of framing our approach to this. But the second thing we want to do in this episode is sort of set the scene and talk about like when we talk about the culture wars, what are we talking about? Where, um, where do these terms come from? And so Ashley, you've done a, a fair amount of research here um, help us kind of get some uh, big picture handholds on this. Like, what are you noticing? What, what, what books, resources would you recommend? Uh, maybe even start off by talking about like, what, what is a culture war? What does that mean? Yeah, you know, I really um, have enjoyed James Davison Hunter. He's written several books, and I referenced it in the previous episode, but the book called culture wars, um, back from early 90s, I think it was published in 1991. And he talks about culture wars as the ability of one side to control power to define America. And I, I think that's really helpful is that culture wars, what it's really about at its essence is the power to define reality. And I think that is really helpful. And sometimes it can help me who will be like, this is just stupid. And so I'm going to pull away. But to realize if you're engaged in cultural war issues, it's because you're you're often feeling threatened that your version of reality is not able to be seen as 
a real option. So I think it, it's actually helped me to grow in some sympathy for for some of that anger, maybe that we say we see played out. But so the culture war, really as a as a term, I think is is the power to define reality. And so, but I want to step back for a second and to really remember that when we think about these terms, as we as we think about it, we have to think about the actual language we use. And this might be, and I'm going to dive into this in a second, but this might be a way in for even discussions with someone who differs from you or, you know, in a leadership team or people where you're like, I don't understand how they see reality so different from how I see it, is to start paying attention to the language we're using um, when we're talking about particular issues. So for instance, I'm going to read this quote here. Uh, I had a piece published in Mere Orthodoxy print magazine, and it's online now. We'll link it in the show notes. And it really works with a lot of my own research and early American metaphors and ideas. So listen in, and I'll, I'll unpack this. So I wrote this. Once Americans had declared their independence from Great Britain, we quickly divided the world into two categories, us and them. We created stories where our heroes were frontiersmen pushing past boundaries of civilization and exploration, outsiders like Huck Finn who had to light out for the territory, and in the 20th century, astronauts and politicians who conquered frontiers. Our metaphors and stories of American identity are about the lone, intrepid male individual defying the odds and conquering anyone or anything who gets in his way. So I think that's important to realize that this has a long history and it has a long history in our literature and it has a long history in our rhetoric. So maybe we're not paying attention so much to like the classic literature of early America. Um, but even if you think back to the 60s and the way in which we talked about space as the final frontier, right? And the frontier has always been a place to conquer. So a lot of the language of how we even perceive ourselves as Americans has to do with the language of war. I mean, that's interesting. I'm thinking about, are, are you saying that like even the, the, the stories that we tell, the narratives that we are drawn to um, sort of reinforce this uh, I, idea of like, of combat? Yeah, combat, combat and conquest are definitely a part of how we understand our relation to physical space in America. Um, so I, and, I don't even know if this yeah. um, if this is accurate to say, but I'm thinking about okay. So what are like the popular, you know, narratives? And I wonder if um, one of the things that I, this could be totally wrong. I don't know, but like so James Bond, right? James Bond is is he's actually British, but I wonder if his popularity in America is kind of speaking to that it's like this individual who just goes and conquers and blows stuff up and saves the day um is that is that kind of what you're getting at yeah and you know even like marvel movies right like with our superheroes like they often embody a lot of what we believe to be american virtues and so i think it's just important to pay attention to the language we use and to see what sorts of categories when we think about formative stories uh are what sort of language is present is important. Okay. And each of these things could be a whole nother episode, but here we go. I'm just going to try to work through these quickly. The um, Another thing I think is important as we 
think about this idea of culture wars, not only what metaphors and language are we using, but this idea of moral imagination. So a few years ago, there was an article in First Things by Jonathan Jones, and he's trying to actually define, we talk about, we should develop moral imagination, you know, and our children and our, our nation should be one of moral imagination, but we don't actually know what that means. And he talks about this idea about the moral imagination is that we actually, it, it, it involves an intuitive ability to perceive ethical truths. So this is from his article. And it's an abiding law in the midst of chaotic experience and that the moral imagination should be an aspiration to a proper ordering of the soul and of the commonwealth. So in other words, he says, this is also- Yeah, yeah break that down for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so what he's saying is in the chaos and craziness of life, that if we have a moral imagination, that that actually helps that kind of non, that helps us be that non-anxious presence in our environment. And that has ramifications for the entire commonwealth. So he says, when we are focusing on moral imagination, that a citizen isn't just like this autonomous individual, but rather to be fully human, he says, is to embrace the duties and obligations toward a purpose of security and endurance for first and foremost, the family and the local community. And so success is measured by the development of character, not the fleeting emotions of status. And so I think another aspect to bring into these culture war conversations is how much of these sorts of things are, are because we are so maybe afraid of our defining understanding of reality being taken away from us that we aren't actually concerned to build a community, a commonwealth. We're more concerned about status. We don't know what it means to develop character. And so we've kind of pushed all of these moral imagination virtues away from like how we conceive of a good life. Um, and so I think like the lack of moral imagination is a huge part of how we got here too. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so these are just like big buckets, I think are, that are helpful for listeners and for all of us to think about is, you know, like pay attention to the language, right. And pay attention to formation. How have we not been formed? You know, we don't have any guidelines as we open up Twitter about like, how do we interact in a civil way? You know, does this tweet actually help the moral imagination of our commonwealth? Probably not. <laughs> so. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe, maybe it'd be helpful if you could like, I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but help us with some examples here. So like, what does paying attention to the language look like? I mean, maybe one thing, uh, is this what you're talking about? I'm thinking about, um, you know, we're in this season right now where uh, people are starting to declare they are running for president next year. And so the next 18 months are going to be a fight, a battle. A, you know, is, is that what you're saying? Like we, we begin talking about or paying attention to even just the language that's being used um, and how those races are playing out. Right. It's a us versus them, right? It's if if X party wins and we don't win, whatever way that we slice that pie, like our way of life is threatened because we then, if we lose, 
we lose the ability to define reality. Like we haven't figured out how to live well with difference in American society. Yeah. Well, and I think part of what we would want to get to as as Christians eventually is because the problem is that people actually do feel like if their side loses that America is over. And Christian faith, you know, provides hope in the midst of that, not that America will continue, but that God will be on his throne um, long beyond uh, whatever happens with the political futures of nation states. And so I would also recommend reading James Davison Hunter if you have the time and inclination. His book, Culture Wars, which I've mentioned, and his book um, that came out 20 years after that in 2009 or 2010 is To Change the World. Um, And in that, he talks about the power of the church and the power of institutions and how does power change this conversation and what does it look like to have cultural influence? And he's asking some fascinating questions and really tracing a lot of those ideas Um, He gets to this idea of the church is supposed to have faithful presence within the structures of our commonwealth, um, within our common life. And so he says in that book, the first task, particularly if we're thinking about what does it look like as Christians, he says the first task is to disentangle the life and identity of the church from the life and identity of American society. In other words, we don't get to play the culture war game. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Yeah, and that's that's hugely important. And I think one of the challenges that we face is the reality that for many Christians, it's hard to think of what a public faith looks like apart from a political or partisan faith. Right. So we've tended to think of like our public witness as Christians is either this like overt evangelistic conversation or it's about who we vote for. And, and so what you're saying is disentangling that Hunter is saying that there is a, a, a public dimension to Christianity that isn't tied to, you know, views on particular issues and candidates. Right. And disentangling our our American identity or our national identity from our identity as Christians. And in other words, we should have more in common from a Christian in Indonesia than we do with maybe someone who votes exactly the same way 
you know, as we do, but is far from Jesus in our own neighborhood. Yeah. 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 Which is also just to, you know, be clear, not to say that there's not a a place for Christian patriotism and yet it's sort of a reordering of priorities. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So it's, I think it's just important to be able to start paying attention to how we spend our time, right? Uh, what sort of language we're using around the church, what sort of language we're using um, as we think about our own political involvement. It's not to say we should be uninformed. It's not to say that we shouldn't have very strong political convictions, but it is to say how much of this has become um, an identity for me and how much of this do I not see the humanity of someone who has a very different conception of reality. And that might be some good kind of gut check questions. So that's just a quick overview of kind of what spheres we see the the culture wars kind of playing out and the importance of paying attention to our language, thinking about, you know, what images and metaphors and stories we're using to tell to tell our stories, thinking about in what ways have the moral imagination um, been formed or un- or disinformed um, wherever we are? And then to begin to think about how might the church be a faithful presence within those culture wars so that we can begin to kind of disentangle the life and identity of the church um, from American society and to also figure out what does it look like to have a public faith? Yeah, that's a helpful uh, introduction overview. Thanks. So Bryce, as we're considering some of these overviews and we're considering the culture wars, where do you see kind of the culture wars playing out? Where where do the culture wars happen? If if the culture wars are the ability to kind of define reality in American life, particularly, and I'm sure it plays out in different places over the around the world, but where do we see the the that war happening? Yeah, I mean that's an interesting question. I think that um, I'm thinking about um, a year or two ago, different podcast, but had a conversation with David French, and he um, kind of jokingly made this this point that um, one of the weird things about the culture war stuff right now is that uh, he, he used the phrase "digital larping," and you know, like sometimes you go to the I don't know if we have listeners who are into this, but you know, we used to walk through this park where there was these like guys dressed up in like medieval nerf gear, like live action role playing. And, um, but, but he's saying, he's saying that like the cult, one of the things that's weird about the culture wars is that a war is an actual conflict. The culture wars are sort of happening, um, over digital spaces. So technology and media is a big part of this that might occasionally happen at, um, you know, like around Thanksgiving tables after everybody's had, you know, the second glass of wine or something like that. But often it's happening, you know, obviously Twitter is sort of like ground zero for people to go after each other. Um, You know, it's happening on cable news as one side is shouting past the other. Um, It's happening, um, you know, even just like the forwarding of the email newsletter, the like, Oh, I got this great sub stack and this really uh, bolsters my point of view here. So I'm going to forward it without comment to this person that I know doesn't agree with me because this is really going to tell them uh, what they need to hear. So uh, there, there is this strange sort of like disembodied reality to 
um, a lot of what's happening. And so it kind of contributes to this sense of like anxiety that's bubbling over, um, you know, it, it, it's like we have, we can simultaneously have this sense of like things are totally crazy and out of control. And yet I can go through my whole day today and interact in person with multiple people and never have any of these things um, be a point of discussion or, or conversation. I will say, you know, also you know, as I as we're talking, it also struck me as it. I wonder if because our technologically kind of siloed lives and algorithmically focused, right? Where we keep getting fed the same sort of stuff from a similar position, you know, like that has maybe even translated in post COVID where people are, are, are moving to actual physical locations of people who think this same way. I mean, that's totally part of it. And, 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 I mean, I've said, um, for a long time that like what COVID certainly like, I don't think it created something new, but it accelerated trends that were already there in, you know, that were already in place. And so we've known for a long time, this thing like the big sort that place people are moving to places that feel ideologically similar to what they believe. And so, but COVID accelerated that. I mean, certainly we we've seen, um, you know, we left California and then came back to California in the middle of COVID. But a lot of people have, have moved out of California during that time and moved perhaps to places w- that are um, ideologically similar to what they want to believe. Um, but I think that COVID, like the, uh, the disembodied reality of COVID heightened and accelerated that trend where it was became a lot easier when you're not like, uh, on a, you know, your kids aren't on a soccer team with somebody who, yeah, I saw what they posted on Facebook last week and I disagreed with them, but we were also like coaching a soccer team together or volunteering in our kids' second grade class together. When all of that goes away, we start to treat people more like avatars of a culture war like issue and less like human beings who have different perspectives. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, I think there's when we're not in proximity, right? We lose a lot of our sociability. And and I remember some someone saying that it's actually it's like the random conversation with the neighbor and talking to your mail carrier and like those are the sorts of things that we lost in COVID that actually provides a fabric for our families and our and our mental health too. And so when we don't have those kind of very low bar social interactions, we can easily default to like all or nothing in our relationships too. Yeah. Yeah. And just one of the realities, like as we're emerging from, you know, as the world has returned to whatever the post COVID normal is, those sorts of relationships aren't always coming back. Yeah. That's a good point. And it's and it. And that reality then actually means that our, our common life is impoverished. So, you know, as we think about, about this, you've mentioned this idea of the Overton window um, a few times in our conversations. I'd love for you to, to help explain that if people don't understand that concept or haven't heard that term, what does that mean? And what does that look like, particularly in a culture war mentality and mindset that we're living through right now? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been thinking about this, the Overton window is an approach 
to um, identifying sort of the acceptable range of discourse. And so the Overton window began, um, there's a, there's a guy named Joseph Overton who came up with this and it it originally was talking about like American um, political policy, but it's been used in a more general sense um, to sort of understand what's considered acceptable and what's considered unacceptable and how that changes over time. And so um, somebody at one point said there, there are essentially six positions in the Overton window. And so the, the, the middle of the Overton window, and it, he insisted that it, you define this like it, a vertically up and down because he didn't want this to be seen as like a left and right thing. But I'm going to come back to that in a sec. But um, so if you think about in the middle of the Overton window, uh, he called it policy. But I would say that in the middle of the Overton window is what's considered normative. Um, and then if you go one step and you can go one step above or below here, um, you're beginning to get outside of what's considered normative. And so the next step is what's popular. And then the next step beyond that is what's considered sensible, which is like, oh, you could disagree, but it's a good idea. And then just outside of that is what's considered acceptable. And then the next step is what's considered radical, which is like, you're not going to be, um, you know, socially shamed for holding this, but man, you will be seen as, wow, that's a, that's an outside of the norm uh, view. And then the final, um, stage or step is, is something that is considered unthinkable. And so I think it's helpful to think about, um, it's a, it's a helpful like diagnostic, uh, to, to think about like how social views change over time. So uh, probably the best example is to think about how, um, American attitudes towards, human sexuality have changed. And, and I, I know it's a little bit like of a politically charged topic and I don't want to get into positions on that just to say that like that's changed dramatically over time. Um, you know, Bill Clinton, who's obviously a Democrat, uh, signed the defense of marriage act into law in the nineties. That's not historically that long ago saying you know that, that marriage was restricted to be between one man, one woman. That was normative in the mid nineties. Um, you know, okay. So there were, there were ideas that were considered radical, um, at the time the, I, the what was considered radical at the time is now, uh, it, it went from being radical to being acceptable, to being sensible, to being very popular to now being normative, um, in a very short period of time. So, um, Where I think this becomes really relevant to the conversation we're having about the culture wars, and this is kind of my theory, and I want to do some more work to try to like flesh this out and back this up. But I think a lot of what's happening in the culture wars is that there are essentially now two different Overton windows in American culture. And so there is, um, it used to be that um, maybe the, political cultural right, political cultural left were working um, on different, different, like one's above one's below what's considered normative. I think now what's happened is that they've totally become disentangled from or detached from one another. And so what's considered normative um, 
you know, on Fox News is considered unthinkable on CNN and what's considered normative um, on CNN isn't just considered, you know, radical. It's considered unthinkable on Fox. Right. News. Can I just jump in here with a, a, a quick example? I was just listening to a podcast the other day as I was driving and they were just talking about the Pulitzer Prizes and the way in which the Pulitzers for, for journalism, um, you know, even 10, 20 years ago, there was a sense in which, hey, we might not agree with this kind of opinion or or position, and yet it's a really well-argued piece. And so there was a wider variety of who won those awards. And, and now it's all kind of one-sided, you know, and so it just – that's a great example I found of what exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can think of it in, in, in a lot of different ways too. I mean, um, you know, so like the Atlantic or the New York times, which are obviously left leaning publications will still publish, um, like pieces by Orthodox Christians that are articulating biblical perspectives. You'll still see that, but then you, what you also sometimes see is like, um, you know, you see people who to one group would be considered, um, you know, just this side of knuckle dragging Neanderthals are considered like, uh, you know, called rhinos by, by, by some people. Right. So you think of like somebody like, Oh, is David French really a conservative or, you know, Russell Moore, who you work with is, is like, people will con- question like, are these people conservatives, yeah, um, there's that infighting. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I just think examples of these culture war things coming to light where what's considered uh, normal, acceptable, sensible in one group is considered unthinkable yeah. to another group. What do we do with that reality? Well, that's what we're going to talk about over the next <laughs> several weeks uh, right here on The Cartographers. So <laughs> that is true. For that. Yes. So we we realize you you are likely stuck in the middle. You're asking good questions. You don't want the hot takes. We have enough of the culture war posturing on every single iteration inside. And so we invite you to stay tuned. Uh, we're going to be talking with folks who have been, been there before who have successfully navigated the culture wars, or at least parts of it, without capitulating to extremes and have found some really beautiful alternatives to the culture wars. Yeah, so please subscribe. Uh, The Cartographers is a production of the Willowbray Institute. Willowbray researches the intersection of Christianity and America and the common good. We want to get at the cultural factors that are upstream from the polarization we are experiencing in our communities and online because the church isn't the life-giving presence that Jesus calls it to be, but we think it could be. And so if you want to stay up to date with us, I'd like to invite you, ask you, please click the link in the show notes below. Go to our website, willowbray.org, and you'll have the option to sign up for our free newsletter. This month, we'll be sending you a one-page PDF to help you bring these conversations into your church and communities. Go to willowbray.org and sign up for our newsletter, and you'll get that in your inbox soon. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you soon. This episode was brought to you in part 
by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.